Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Denver and shortly and during the show we'll be joined by our 250 game veteran of the Victorian Premier League and former Notts County man Dean Hennessy and our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson. First up, the spotlight continues on the Olympics with the Matildas still in contention for a medal after qualifying for the knockout stages via a third place finish in a tough group but the Oli Roos went from rooster to feather duster after shocking the football world with a win over Argentina. Argentina, they couldn't match it with Egypt and exited the tournament without a chance to contend for a medal. Former Matilda and Fox Sports commentator Grace Gill joins us to look at the Matilda's efforts in the group stage and ahead to their knockout quarterfinal against Great Britain. Then we'll look at the Oli Roos campaign with soccer legend himself and great mate of the show, John Cosmina. And to wrap up the hour, a total shift in focus. We'll look at the ongoing financial fair play issue around Manchester City. Two and a half years since De Spiegel broke the story, it is still unresolved while the Sky Blues grow from strength to strength. We'll be joined by Matt Slater from The Athletic to make sense of it all in the first of a double header of guests from the world's leading online sports publication. In the second hour, Willem will kick off with second edition news and more on the Socceroos, Matildas and Oliroos, their campaigns over in Tokyo. And then the Scottish Premiership kicks off this weekend and we all know what the story is from an Australian point of view there. We'll be joined by the Athletics man on the Celtic beat, Kieran Devlin, to get his take on how Ange Postacoglu is settling in more on the latest transfer news and signings with Dino and Dell, and we'll wrap it up with stoppage time. Michael, it's been um, enjoyable watching uh, this last week of football. Uh, disappointing to see the Socceroos, the Ollie Roos, I should say, go out against uh, the uh, the young Pharaohs, but uh, well, really the better team won on the day. And the Matildas, you know, they scraped through. It's probably harsh to say lucky loser because it was a strategy towards the end, and uh, and they got through. And you know. A lot better signs. The Oli Roos simply not good enough when they had to be robbed. Um, really disappointing to go down to Egypt 2-0. I'm really looking forward to talking to soccer legend John Cosmina. I want his view on our technical technical competency. For me, the deficiencies were glaring. The Matildas, they're getting better game by game, no doubt about it. The big learning for me, uh, or the football community generally, is that Mary Fowler is ready. We've known that for some time, Rob. Mm. We've talked about her often on this show. She just has to start against GB because... One, she's good enough, and two, she's going to play a massive role in the 23 Women's World Cup, and she needs experiences in big games. So let's uh, watch that. Willem, what have you got for us? want to talk about those games in a little bit more depth off the top, Michael. The Matildas advanced to the knockout stages of the Tokyo Olympics on Tuesday night and will face Team Great Britain on Friday in the quarterfinals. The Matildas more than matched the USA for large parts of their group stage clash in Tashima before both sides ultimately settled for a nil-all draw. Should the Matildas progress against GB, they'll face the winner of Sweden and Japan. While in the other quarterfinals, the Netherlands will play the US and Canada will meet Brazil. Uh, not sure we learnt a great deal about the uh, the Matildas in the US clash, Michael. They did knock the ball around for the last 20 minutes, but it did require a bit of game management from Tony Gustafsson's shot. And it also showed, not that we didn't know it already, that 12 teams at the Olympics 
is ridiculous in the women's tournament. How hard could it be to get another four and create a bit of competitive tension? We've talked for the last three weeks, haven't we, about the 12-team competition for women at the Olympics. It really does undersell the potential of that event. Having said that, um, yeah, Matildas are OK, but, gee, I've been following the American press, and haven't they been absolutely belted from pillar to post, the US women? Their expectations are much higher than what they're performing. They've, they they called um, uh, Paul Kennedy, one of the leading women's football journalists, called them a bunch of duds. Uh, against Australia that they couldn't get the job done against what he called uh, an unimpressive and underprepared Australian outfit. So that is interesting from America. The pressure's on the US women. They've got to play the Netherlands, believe it or not, a world Women's World Cup final uh, rematch in a, in a quarterfinal of a Women's World Cup. And I think Netherlands will go in favourites. I didn't realise that they polarised opinion so much in the States as well. I mean, I know that uh, we don't place a lot of stock on the former president, but, uh, but he was cheering on their loss. Um, one D Trump saying that half of America was happy that they'd lost. So uh, it's interesting, given the, the outspoken nature of the side. That um, yeah, they uh, you know you would have thought that they'd be they'd be heroines uh, from one side of the country to the other. Yeah, the other interesting moment is that the, the, the um, Black Lives Matter movement has also had a fair bit to say that they believe that. Um, um, African-American athletes are underrepresented in women's football. So there is a lot of underlying issues, the gender pay gap, uh, the, the, the pay issue, which is ongoing. And, mm. yeah, they've, um, they've got a lot of pressure on them. There's no doubt about that, Willem. The Oli Olympic campaign is over after a 2-0 loss to Egypt. Saw them let slip a golden opportunity to progress to the knockouts. Needing only a draw to progress, Australia defended accordingly in the first half before throwing everything at Egypt and their keeper, Mohamed Al-Shanawi, when chasing a goal in the second Daniel Arzani, I thought, changed the match off the bench in the second half, but ultimately, as is so often the case in these big tournaments, Australia was short of a goal when it really counted. And Rob, uh, lots of debate, as always, when Australia bombs out of a major tournament, but this has left a really sour taste in my mouth. No matter how poor Argentina were on reflection, we showed in that class what we could do when we went out and, and we play on our terms, and we got half of that this tournament, the other half whatever reason the coaching staff decided to be extremely conservative and we've ended up blowing a very good chance to go through. Yeah, well, there was a fair bit of banter going on between the three of us during that game as to uh, expectations, both of the, the playing style and uh, and that of the opposition. I know Edge uh, you know, was clear-cut on, on the fact that, uh, and it was a fact in the end, that Egypt were the better side. They uh, were technically more adept. Uh, they were bigger, stronger. Uh, we obviously... Obviously, suffered from the fact that we had three of our first choice players uh, on two yellow cards from the previous match, and uh, and look, I just thought ultimately that the Egyptians um, outmanaged us in the overall tournament. They they knew what they were capable of, of getting from the the Spain and the Argentina matches. They set their sights on Australia to get the full three points, and uh, you know they uh, they pulled it off, and uh, and we just weren't good enough. We had our chances, but uh, just edge weren't good enough. Generally, the football community in Australia under. Um, values the the African uh, teams in the underage competitions. They do very well, uh, the African teams in underage football competitions at World Cups. And the Egyptians were, you know, that age group had been uh, very strong uh, right through their de- development pathway. But I've got one question for Willem. Um, if you're a young footballer, are you better off being in an A League academy club, uh, A League club academy, or are you better off being in a European club academy? My view is very very strong on this. You're much better off being in the European talent pathway. You'll get developed um, far faster and uh, in, in a much better environment. And that's one of the big questions that comes out of this uh, Oli Roos campaign for me. And just staying with the uh, the men's tournament at the Olympics, New Zealand, they've reached the knockouts for the first time and they'll meet Japan in Saturday's quarterfinal. That's going to be a very difficult proposition for the Kiwis because Japan 
cap a faultless group stage with a 4-0 win over France. And they're firming to add a medal to an already sensational home tally. Also flying a South Korea, who backed up a 4-0 win over Romania uh, with putting six goals past Honduras. South Korea will now face Mexico, while Spain will meet Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, and Brazil will play Egypt. Oh, I'm on the host nation, Japan. I tell you what, I want them to go all the way for two reasons. Uh, they're obviously a big uh, nation in Asia, and we want Asia to do well. But but the Japanese public, who've been a fabulous host for the Olympic Games, they've uh, undertaken mass, massive amount of sacrifices. Football is their number one sport. They love the Japanese uh, Olympic team in both the men and the women, and I hope they uh, go all the way and give uh, lots of smiles to the Japanese public, who've been fabulous supporters of... Uh, and getting this event away in really difficult circumstances. I just hope there's a few Japanese schools kids that led into that stadium, uh, Willem, can make, make some noise and get behind the home nation. All right, well, well done. Um, look, after the break, we are going to talk Matildas. Uh, Grace Gill, former Matilda herself, Fox Sports commentator, is uh, an excellent analyst on the women's game. And uh, look, we're a, a red-hot chance, but geez, it's going to be tough against Team Great Britain. Grace Gill, after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial yes, This is Box to Box on 9 Radio, NTS News Talk Sport. We've been loving the Olympics and we've been loving the fact that the Matildas are doing a lot better than they were in those friendlies. Uh, the first hitouts under Tony Gustafsson. I know they, uh, they had that loss against Sweden and a nil-all draw against the United States, but uh, we are all very, very hopeful that against Team GB in not uh, too far dif- distant future that they will be not just competitive but um, they might just get through to the, the medal stakes and uh, to talk to us about it is former Matilda herself twice W League winning player with Canberra United Grace Gill how are you Grace? Good thanks guys thanks very much for having me on. No, not at all, Grace. I guess uh, going into this tournament, all of our expectations were somewhere down around our ankles. Uh, you know, we'd seen those hidings that the Matildas copped in the friendlies, and uh, you were wondering whether Tony Gustafsson had had enough time to get it together. Injured players, COVID interfering. But uh, you know, if we step back and look at this uh, uh, tournament to date, we should be pretty happy, I reckon. Yeah, look, I think you're right. I think some of those early friendly matches didn't necessarily instill the most confidence um, in the Matildas, but They've really grown over this tournament and in terms of the results and what we've seen uh, in these opening round matches, I think each game has improved and we've seen a different Matilda side step out and they're probably just hitting their stride at the right time um, in quarterfinal football. I think there's been three players to me that have really stood out uh, that we can talk about. One is Samantha Kerr. She didn't score any goals in the lead-up and uh, she had a couple of injury niggles. We were very worried, but uh, her three goals have been crucial to Australia qualifying for the quarterfinals. They've all been headers, two of them very, very classy, Grace. So Sam Kerr's mm. in form. It really is leading the line and, um, and I just sense that she's growing into the role as skipper and, and really comfortable with responsibility that takes. Sam's the kind of player that if she's not scoring goals, she's demanding the attention of defenders around her. So she's opening up space for other people as well. The fact that she is so aerially dangerous is such a threat for the Matildas. And um, particularly that goal, the header on the near post against Sweden was just class. And she's able to produce those things in really high pressure pressure matches. And I agree with you. I think she is gradually stepping into that role of captain and and really understanding her place in the side and, and how she's meant to lead a team in international football. A player that's often in the shadows of Samantha Kerr is Tamika Yallop, me, but she's been around a long time, but uh, she's dependable, she's tough, she gets in and, uh, and gets the job done. And again, she's been very, very impactful. Um, she's a quality player, Tamika. She's a player who I 
played sort of alongside in some of our early younger children's stuff. And um, she's always just been a class athlete and she's just such a hard worker. And I think she's really come back into this side with a real different kind of strength and fitness um, and athleticism. And she's such a nuisance to play against. Um, and I think she's been a real handful for the opposition and obviously got that goal herself, which was brilliant against New Zealand. Um, I'm really, really pleased to see her come into form. And a player that I've felt has been ready for some time is uh, probably the player that is technically the most proficient in the squad and one of the younger ones, Mary Fowler. She really did uh, stamp uh, her brand on the game against the US and I've got a feeling that uh, uh, he, uh, Tony Gustafsson might start her uh, against Great Britain. I, I thought she was uh, extremely uh, extremely comfortable uh, in that game and uh, I, I think we can expect a lot from her. Um, she really is going to be an important player to 2023. I think she needs the experience of a big game. Do you think Mary should start against Great Britain? Oh, look, I think she's certainly got the capability to start. Um, I think the right word that you've used there is comfortable. Um, she just seems so completely non-fussed by this world stage and for such a young player to step onto a field and just look like she's been there for years is such an impressive thing and she moves um, really well as a footballer and she looks really comfortable between the lines and um, we did see that opportunity that she set Sam Kerr up with um, which Sam was unable to convert but it just shows the kind of strength that a young player like Mary Fowler brings into this side and um, the asset and the sort of strength that she can add to a Matilda's team. Another player that um, that impressed particularly in the last match, we thought she was pretty hard done by uh, uh, in front of uh, a what ended up being a pretty leaky defensive unit against Sweden. T and Micah, uh, she uh, she was always going to be a, a player in goals that uh, that was a player of, of the future. She's uh, she's not a tall goalkeeper by any standards, but uh, that career that she had in the US college system and and more recently in the A League and in Sweden has really rounded off her her ability and uh, and and a quality goalkeeper she is. Tegan Mike is one of these young, promising players who we could potentially see in the Matildas for many more years to come. Um, I'm so pleased for her to find a way back into this Matildas side. I think when the girls go over to the US, there is a real fear of out of sight, out of mind, not being in the national team fold. But she had such an impressive uh, four years under with the UCLA Bruins, um, and she just made a stamp for herself and made a mark for herself. And I think in the friendlies um, against Sweden, she stood up. And I was really interested to see Tony Gustafsson give her the second start um, against the USA. But I think it was really well-deserved. Um, and I think she'll just go from strength to strength. Yeah, I think we've observed the passing of the baton from Lydia to Tegan. I think Tegan's nailed the number one spot and uh, we wish her well going forward. Let's talk about some of the more challenging things. Oh, actually, before we do that, let's just uh, give recognition to a new uh, women's sport television viewing audience benchmark was set. 1.47 million viewers uh, of the Matildas uh, when we played Sweden. That beat the next best event, Rob, which was 1.41 million viewers. And I won't ask you what it is because you won't know what it is, but it was two years ago when Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams played in the Australian Open final that uh, now has been knocked off by the Matildas. Just gives you a, an inkling of just how popular and how, how much cut through this team has with the mainstream. But let's talk about some of the challenging stuff. A big problem for Tony Gustafsson is the left-handed side of his defence. Sweden, they drove holes, not only holes, they drove goals through that area. Uh, it forced Gustafsson to substitute Ivy Lewick early in the second half against Sweden. Uh, what, what can he do in that area of the field? It seems to be one of our major problems going forward in the match against Great Britain, Grace. Yeah, it has been a question for the Matildas for probably a couple of years now. Um, you see the likes of Polk 
perhaps coming into the end of her international career, still holds a really resolute defensively um, in that centre-back role. And then you've seen Alana Kennedy kind of come in and out of the side. There's a bit of uncertainty there. Um, obviously, we've got Ellie Carpenter on the right-hand side and Steph Catley moves between being the left full-back or central uh, defender there. It's a really good question. Um, Sweden are going to test the Matildas tomorrow night. Oh, sorry, not not, the, not Great Britain, Great Britain. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Great Britain are really going to test uh, the Matildas tomorrow night. Um, they play a kind of passing game and their final third football is pretty impressive with the likes of Helen White in that top part. Um, I don't know the answer to your question. I don't know what the best. <laughs> well, let me throw something at you, Grace. Yeah. Elise Keller Knight, I mean, she's come off a long problem with her, you know, a, a basically an ACL mm. reconstruction. She's thrown in the squad at the last moment. She's played in that role previously. If she's fit, I don't know whether she is. We're not in camp, obviously, but um, I, I just think that uh, Ivy, as much as we love her, you know, making her debut at 36 years of age, and we know that the respect Ivy has mm. from the community, but she got turned over for pace badly by the Swedes and if he goes with Ivy that'll be their target to, to you know they'll target her to, mm. to go through that area of the great is Khaled not an option for him or is it just you know she's just not not going to be ready look I'd love to say that she is I don't know the state of her the fitness and her injury and where she's up to um, she's done an amazing job in getting herself back to into the squad for one um, in terms of actual international football whether that's 45 minutes 90 minutes I don't actually know where she's up to um, I really rate KK. I think she's a quality player. I think she's smart. I think she can slot into you know a defensive midfield role, a left back role. Well, she played there at the World she's, Cup, didn't she? Uh, that's one, right. One of yeah, those, yeah. The Brazil game, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, and she's really capable. Um, so I think no matter where she is put on the park, she'll she'll do a job. Um, as to the question of what her fitness is up to, where she's up to in that regard, I don't actually know. Um, I'd love to see her get back out in the park for some Olympic football, though. Before we let you go, Grace, let's look at uh, the Team GB side. I mean, they're, they're not necessarily ranked in the FIFA rankings because it is the uh, the combination of uh, the home nations. Uh, but England, on their own, sit uh, number six, uh, a few spots above Australia, Steph Houghton, Lucy Bronze, uh, the, uh, the the squad is, is exactly packed with uh, with big name players sure uh, who, who all play in what's fast becoming the equivalent, uh, and and it looks to be uh, on a trajectory to, to even exceed the, the quality of the the US national competition. Uh, how, what do you think our genuine chances are, given what you've seen so far and what you know of of, of the, the the combined team GB? Yeah, look, I do really rate the combined team GB. You've mentioned a couple of names there that are going to be really threatening, particularly someone like Ellen White. Uh, she's a class player. She plays a really traditional kind of number nine role, and she's been really effective in this tournament so far. And then you add in the likes of someone like Kim Little, who's the creator for them um, in that sort of number 10 role, and she just conducts the play through there. And she, She's quality. We've seen her in the W League as well, obviously, but she's um, she's good on the world stage. Um in terms of our chances against Team GB, I think it honestly is going to depend on what Matilda's team shows up tomorrow night. And I know that sounds a bit cliche, but if we see the team that showed up against Sweden in the first half and absolutely put it to them, I think we can take the game. But if we see the Matilda show up um, that perhaps sat back a bit in the USA game or didn't quite have the clinical need that they needed in the New Zealand game, we might get done over there against a really, really class Team GB side. 
Yeah, and especially coming off the uh, the back of their disappointment in the loss uh, to Italy in the Euros final, uh, they might uh, start to be uh, singing "Footballs Coming Home Again." Uh, hopefully, not at <laughs> don't our give experience. them any opportunity. No, no, and I've been told by uh, the great Brenton Speed that um, that in the history of the Olympics, there has been uh, a, a person who has competed with the surname of Gold and Silver, but this is the first time a bronze has actually competed in the Ooh, Olympics. Okay. So Very hopefully, good. yes, that won't uh, be a, uh, a sign of things. He wants to pull that money out on the weekend, doesn't he? Yeah, I oh, he will. Yeah, he will. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have used it. Maybe he was telling me off the record. You could have been, yeah. Yeah. Or hey, Grace, look, thanks so much for joining us. We'll all be uh, watching that game uh, on Friday evening. If you're listening to the show uh, after the event, hopefully uh, you've got the good news. But um, yeah, we're all uh, very excited about the Matildas prospects, and uh, uh, we really do need to see that uh, that continued form uh, on the trajectory to towards 2023 going the right direction. Thanks very much, guys. Excellent, Grace Gill. All right, stick around. Um, from the winners to the losers, we're going to talk uh, about the Ollie Roos with it. Johnny Cosmina. Did they do themselves justice? Did Arnie uh, play the defensive card in that uh, final match against Egypt uh, a little too much? We're going to find out what Johnny Cosmina thinks after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. This could be the most crucial. Yes, this is Box to Box on Nine Radio NTS News Talk Sport. We talked before the break to Grace Gill about. Uh, the chances of the Matildas getting a medal. There's no chance of the Oli Roos getting a medal after they were bundled out against uh, Egypt. We uh, had all had such great expectations after the Argentina win, but it was not to be. And to talk to us about it, our good friend, uh, former Socceroo himself, John Cosmina. How are you, Cosy? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, Cosy. Um, I guess we had so much expectation. I think um, if you if you had have asked us all the day or two before the Olympics started, uh, um, we um, we would have probably uh, thought a, you know a creditable performance uh, and in the group of death would have been uh, uh, something that uh, we would have all been happy with. But after we we got that result against Argentina, admittedly against ten men in the second half, and then holding out Spain, you know, a veritable Euros squad uh, for eighty minutes, so we thought, well, we ought to be able to go out and, and at least attack at some some stage, but uh, Arnie chose a different course, and uh, you know there's been a fair bit of criticism. I know uh, Bozza has said to Mark Bosnich uh, that uh, it was a wasted opportunity, and that um, you know the, it's a recipe for sowing seeds of doubt um, when uh, you play a, a team like uh, Egypt for a chance to go through the knockout stages. I mean, given all of that, what's your what's your general view of the way we set up and, and then ultimately went out? You know, you look at having Spain and Argentina in your group, and you probably think your chances are pretty close to zero. But because we got that result against Argentina, then everyone suddenly jumps on a you know the, the victory bandwagon and, yeah, we're going to get a gold medal. Now we're a good chance, um, which is completely unrealistic um, because Argentina, even with 10 men, controlled long periods of that game. Um, we scored twice in good transition, uh, and they were clever goals, especially Tilio's the second one. Um, and Argentina probably weren't, as good defensively as they could have been. Certainly not as good as Spain were. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, expectations skyrocket, which is it puts an undue lot of pressure on the players, I guess, to some extent. But um, that's typically how things work in this country. We get pumped up about one result and um, we've got to look at the real picture. And, you know, it was just one result and that was it. But I do tend to agree with Bosnick. But then you've got to look at Arnie as a coach. Arnie does set up. He builds his teams on defending. And he did it with Sydney FC and did it very successfully. He did it with Central Coast Mariners and did it successfully. You know, so far with the Socceroos, and they've been successful to get to the next stage of 
of qualifying. Um, he's done it that way. And they've been successful. You know, they won six or seven on the trot, wasn't it? Um, they've come top of their group quite convincingly. And it gets reasonable opposition. So you wouldn't have expected too much last night. I think the, maybe the switch to the back five. He did that in the second half against Spain and, and got some joy out of it. Um, so maybe he thought this will work. The problem it come down to, though, for me, was also personnel. Um, no Atkinson, who has been outstanding as a right back, whether it was a wing back in the back five, did eventuate against Spain, or as a full back in a back four. Um, he's defended well, but it's his going forward that makes a difference. And um, Thomas Deng last night was just impaled into insignificance, um, not to in, in comparison to Atkinson's performances in the first two games. Uh, Mitch Duke, I think we probably missed his industry more than anything else. He didn't have a very good game at all against Spain, um, but he puts himself about. He makes life difficult for centre-backs. Um, Nick D'Agostino is not the same sort of player. He's not a, he hasn't got the work rate, um, uh, you know, or probably the experience that the Duke has. They missed him as well. And Ryan McGree, who I thought was pretty quiet, to be honest, yeah, me given too. the standards we've come to expect from him. Mm. Um, but then you've got to look at the opposition he was playing against. And, you know, you did mention a fair point that in the six of that Spain squad were in the Euros just two weeks ago. And, you know, there's, you know, the two, um, I can't remember the two players that were mentioned. Um, the guy that scored the winner and, and one other player, I think, have played more, you know, the Liga games between them than our entire squad have played first grade games in their life. So, you know, you're looking at, you're not comparing apples with apples. Uh, but what it came down to last night, I think, was that we, we struggled to keep the ball, um, especially getting in the front half of the pitch. It looked a bit better in the second half. Um, only be, well, the boys became a little bit more adventurous. Um, but it just wasn't... It, and it, it was symptomatic of our whole performance, if you really look objectively at the first two games. Um, we're OK. We know we defend well. We win the ball back. But the amount of times we just give it straight back within two or three passes... It just creates pressure, and we were doing that last night. And in the defence of the players, I will say that um, looking at the, the level of energy um, what, from what you can pick up on the TV screen, um, they look cooked. They really look cooked. The first two games took a hell of a lot out of them. The heat's fairly um, punishing over there to start with. Uh, and, you know, having to defend as long as they did against Spain and as desperately as they did in the amount of effort that was put into that, and that was only, you know, 72 hours beforehand, um, they, they look pretty shot to me. But there's also a psychological aspect that's, that's probably important. Um, if you set up defensively and you look at Australia defended well against Argentina, Australia defended well against Spain, um, there were two teams where, you know, you expect the opposition to dominate possession, and both those sides did. Um Last night was an opportunity for Australia to actually kick the ball a bit more and be a bit more proactive and be a bit more offensive, and we couldn't do it. To me, watching the game, the Egyptians looked technically superior. They also looked physically superior. They bossed us quite a bit. Uh, not only could we not keep the ball, they they got a, they got the ball off us uh, regularly. And um, for me, that was you know that was one of the big takeouts. Uh, and so I want to ask you just about the technical competence of that group because we were missing three players that were very important in the first two games. And you've mentioned those, McGree, Duke and Atkinson. But that group last night that played technically, we just looked off the pace. Look, I said Duke struggled for me against Argent, um, against Spain. Um, he got caught technically as well um, with his first touch and stuff. But the thing that frustrated the most, it, it frustrated me probably last night 
a lot, and to some extent in the first two games, just, we struggled to pass the ball properly. Mm. You look at the timing and yeah, the weight. We turned it over, didn't we? Yeah, we kicked it out. I like and, yeah. passes, yeah, that go smooth and, and they're hit crisp and, and the, the timing and everything is, is, is spot on. And we struggle to get that. But I've noticed that in the A-League as well. The mm. ball doesn't move quick enough. You know, sometimes it just bobbles along. Other times it's overhit. Um, we probably hit a few too many long ones as well, I think. Um, yeah, that was obvious. The fans yeah. were cutting up about... Uh, bombing it to um, two big boys at the end there when we were desperate for goals. But, um, yeah, the, the fans were pretty upset about that. Yeah, they're getting knocked in too high. If you want to knock them into to big blokes up front, you want to sort of drill them in so that we can um, the guy can get in front of his defender and help it on. You know, or if it's low enough, it gets put down. But we don't drop things into feet. Um, the other thing I don't think we do well technically, as I said, is pass, but we don't move the ball quick enough when the opposition are close to it. Cosie, I just want to... of players that got caught in possession last night. I want to throw two names at you and I want to just get your immediate thoughts on them. Thomas Deng. Thomas Deng is a natural centre-back, not a right-back. He's not even a centre-back in a back three. I think he's a better in a back four or just he's given a simple defensive role, one that the onus was on him to attack last night. It's not in his locker. Ask too much of it. Daniel Azani. Frustrates the hell out of me. I'll be honest, um, Daniel Ozone looks to me like a kid that grew up learning tricks and not learning basics. You know, these dead balls um, yeah, they were left a lot to be desired. Yeah. Um, mm. His shooting, well, there was one time, and I know Brenton Speed got so excited about it, I thought he was going to swallow the mic. Um, but, you know, he beat a couple of players, but then he had a shot from about 25 metres out that went probably 30 metres over the bar. He doesn't strike a ball cleanly. And for me, Ozone's a in his present um, incarnation is a is a, an impact player off the bench like he was last night. Um, he, Arnie has said that he won't or doesn't like to play Tilio and Azani in the same team. It's probably because neither of them are really good defenders. The amount of times Azani gets a ball and, and he plays it and then he stops, and stands still. He's modelled himself on Ronaldo, except there's a there's a massive gap in quality there. Um, you look at Ronaldo at 22 years of age, you look at Daniel Arzani, they're light years apart. Well, Cosy, uh, there's one thing we are always guaranteed from you, and that is an honest and forthright opinion. Uh, I think we've heard um, the assessment that we uh, we wanted to hear, um, the good, the bad, and uh, you know the in-between. Uh, at least we've got uh, a group of young players that have come through, and um, and they've had they've, they've been tested against some of um, the, the world's best against Spain, and um, and, and hopefully um, some of them will uh, will go on to better futures, Arnie. Well, Cosy, thank you so much again for, for joining us, mate. We'll, we'll look forward to talking again real soon. Not a problem. Cheers. All right, after the break, we're going to talk to Matt Slater from The Athletic. A totally different uh, discussion here. This is about the Manchester City financial fair play. You know, did you think it had gone away? Did you think it was over? It hasn't. Um, there's still more to come. It, it's been uh, not necessarily swept under the carpet, but uh, it's just been bobbling along in the background. Matt Slater from The Athletic next on Box to Box. Box to Box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and Yes, more. this is Box to Box on Nine Radio NTS News Talk Sport, broadcasting across Australia, around the world, on whatever podcast uh, catcher you listen to. We've talked Olympics so far with the Matildas and the Ollie Roos. We're going to take a pivot here to uh, a story that's been bobbling along in the, in the background, uh, the financial fair play story around Manchester City. And uh, to discuss it with us is a man who wrote a comprehensive article in this week's Athletic. Matt Slater, how are you, Matt? 
I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, mate, we're really good. So just to set the scene, I know this is a football program, obviously, so that our listeners are well aware of the, the story itself. But but briefly, in November 2018, De Spiegel, the German magazine, published a series of stories claiming city's majority owner, Sheikh Mansour, a member of the Abu Dhabi royal family, deputy prime minister of the UAE, had secretly been topping up the club's revenues via inflated deals with Emirati sponsors. De Spiegel claimed he would then reimburse these sponsors all of whom have close links to the Emirati government out of his own pocket. So you'll recognise those words because they pretty much come from your article. So the the story uh, of this FFP has been going along for two and a half years, as you say, at the top, but it's not over yet. No, and that's that's, that's pretty much what we learned last week. Um, So, yeah, I mean, your listeners will remember there was a huge hoo-ha around those emails, um, and UEFA announced pretty promptly that they were going to investigate, as you'd expect. Um, and that, that investigation, you know, chugged along. Um, it was relatively transparent. The chapters in it were kind of played out in front of us. Um, UEFA went through its process and banned Manchester City, you know, quite sensationally, really, um, for two years from European competition and fined them 30 million um, euros. And then Manchester City promptly appealed to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is often sort of called sport's highest court, and won there. Um, uh, you know, a contentious case right to the last. They won two to one. It's a, it's a three-person arbitration panel. Overturned their ban and reduced that 30 million euro fine to 10 million euros. And that was really because the only thing they were found guilty of in the end was not cooperating properly with UEFA. So that that's played out and people are still arguing about that and will do forever, evermore. Um, now the Premier League, the day after UEFA said, we're going to investigate, said the same, they issued a press release. Um, and that's it. Like a, like a sort of submarine that sort of, you know, is out there patrolling the, the icy waters. It, it, it went underneath and we've not heard anything more about this Premier League investigation until last week when a couple of high court judgments arrived and revealed, one, the Premier League hadn't dropped the investigation, had actually asked Manchester City to disclose lots of documents. Two, Manchester City have not disclosed those documents, spent two and a half years refusing to do so, had then sued the Premier League, taken them to the court to say, you can't ask us for these documents. Your, your arbitration process is wrong. Um, we're not going to do it. The, they lost that case. The court said we're going to publish uh, the judgment because, you know, that's what courts do. Justice should be sort of, you know, public at the end of the day. Um, both Manchester City and the Premier League then appealed against that verdict to say, no, 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 don't, don't publish the verdict. This is all going to be done in private. And they've lost that one. So it was only at that point we found out the one Premier League hasn't hasn't dropped the investigation. Uh, two Manchester City has been fighting it every step of the way, um, and you know, and, and that's where we're at. So we've we've, we've learned a bit more, but the, I guess the main thing we've learned is this sort of remarkable two plus year, very expensive top QCs, unbelievable judges involved. Some of the highest judges in the country have been have been making these rulings. This, this is this this sort of legal process has been going on completely secretly. Uh, in the background. A lot of people just thought the Premier League had potentially gone soft on Manchester City, but reading your article, they, there's been a, a significant amount of legal uh, activity in the background. Um, Australian listeners 
um, f- for, for you, Matt. Um, they're very tuned into the City Football Group because they own Melbourne City and Melbourne City's the reigning A-League champions down here. Their women's team's been mm. uh, premiers two of the last three years as well. So, um, you know, there is a, they have a big profile here. And one executive, Simon Pearce, who... Um, doesn't have a big profile in the in the from a media context here, but has within the game a very big influence over um, who's elected to Football Australia's board. Who uh, he is a deal maker of epic proportions in Australian football, but um, he's also been central to a lot of this uh, activity that's happened between the royal family sponsors and the proposed reimbursements. De Spiegel mentioned him in dispatches. Um, just for Australian listeners. Um, you know, how significant has his role been in it and um, should we be con- concerned about his role? Well, I can certainly answer the first part of that um, because that's easy. He's been absolutely, he is one of the central characters here. I mean, he he sends a few of the, I mean, there were half a dozen emails that the Spiegel published in November 2018. And I can't remember off the top of my head whether he sent two of them or, he certainly sent at least, I think he sent two of them. And then as a, after the Cass ruling, which came in uh, the summer of 2020. Oh, I'm getting my years confused now. I think it was last summer, wasn't it? Um, no, the summer before. No, no, it was last summer. Definitely last summer because they were, Man City were in the quarterfinals, I remember. Um, so, yeah, and, it, and there was, they released a, third, a seventh email that was done with sort of delicious timing. And I think they held it back just in case um, uh, Man City were minded to go after the Spiegel. Um, there's certainly... It certainly kind of stirred the pot once more in that the way the cast ruling went was that some of the allegations that, well, some of the charges that UEFA made were time barred, right? So there was a statute of limitations within the financial fair play rules. And some of these emails referred back to as far back as 2011, 2012 season. That was just too far back. So they were immediately wiped. And then you got to this, these, the rest of the emails, which were, from 2012 till late 2013. Um, and they just, they weren't proven, right? So what you effectively had was these allegations, these hacked emails that Manchester City have never, ever really challenged beyond saying they're stolen property. Um, but the Man City sort of argument was they were taken out of context. Um, and at CAS, they went a little bit further with that and said, look, one, they're taken out of context. And, and, and two, where is the proof that the conspiracy that appears to be suggested by these emails happened or could even happen? And to sort of make their case, they brought out a load of, they brought out the chief exec of, of, of Etihad. They got Shake uh, Mansell to do written testimony. They got forensic accountants to say, look, here's the money that's gone from Etihad and Etisalat and all these other sponsors. Here's it's gone to City, it's gone back. Uh, we've got Etihad and Etisalat absolutely delighted with their sponsorship relationship with Man City. Uh, it, yeah, it seems to be the going rate for a really successful football team. X, Y, Z, right? So they had, they had an awful lot of evidence to suggest that this apparent conspiracy just didn't happen. And then this seventh email came out afterwards, which just appeared to sort of build on what the Spiegel said initially. No, look, money is sort of shuffling around from pot to pot. Sheikh Mansour will just reimburse these guys um, a little bit down the line, you know, if, it, if it's a 90 million sponsorship, the company will put in 10, I'll send them 80, we'll make it right at the end of the day. And you had, you had Simon Pierce in a very sort of chummy email saying, oh, I've sent, I haven't sent you quite enough, 
How do you want to sort of sort it next time? Do you want to just knock two and a half million what you owe me next time or should I? And it just, and you just thought, whoa, right? And that's just been left hanging there. So he is absolutely in the middle of this. And he has a very, very crucial role within the whole City Football Group, Man City, Abu Dhabi story anyway, because he is effectively a spin, box, spin doctor. You know, he went, he works for Abu Dhabi. You know, he works for Abu Dhabi PLC. His job, his gig, I think he's half English. Uh, I think he's sort of a, an Anglo-Aussie. Um, he, you know, he went over to Abu Dhabi ooh, uh, 15 years or so ago to kind of rebrand them. So he is absolutely crucial to this. He works for the, you know, he works for the sort of central authority there. Um, you know, and I know that of the, of the CFG teams, Melbourne's the one that he has the sort of kind of most hands-on involvement with. I think it's almost sort of like his pet project. So, look, yeah, an absolutely crucial figure. And, um, you know, I think we should sort of say right from the get-go here that he has always very strongly maintained that there's, you know, no wrongdoing has, 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 has happened here but has also never really explained what is going on in those emails either. Now, Matt, um, a lot of fans in Australia will say the Premier League's awash with money anyway. Why is all this important? You know, um, there's billionaire owners of all the different clubs. They all kick money in left, right and centre. Why is Manchester City being singled out? Uh, can you explain to our listening audience why this is important? There is certainly a kind of reasonable argument to be made that financial fair play rules, which came in, uh, they started talking about them in about 2009-10. They didn't actually sort of come in until 2011-12. There were sort of theories as to what, what they were about. Now, um, there's one school of thought that Michel Platini, who was the, the, the UEFA president at the time, and lots of people in European football were very concerned about the amount of debt in the game, the amount of unpaid bills to various tax authorities. There are a few high-profile bankruptcies, you know, Portsmouth Rangers, others in, in other countries as well. And, and look, the spending was unsustainable. They just needed to rein it in, you know, kind of a, a US-style salary cap of sorts, just some cost controls. So, so that was certainly one of the reasons. It's one of the ones that, that UEFA will keep talking about afterwards and say, well, look, it worked. Look, you know, now the debt in the game has come down. The game does appear to be more sustainable. However, right, there's a... That it would be fair to say that the big clubs resisted it for a while and then kind of embraced it. They delayed it for a year. They sort of tweaked some of the, some of the elements of it. And then you start to sort of think, well, what effect has it had? Well, it's crystallized the status quo. It's basically saying you can only spend what you make, right, yourself. Well, the money that you generate yourself, that, that's what you can spend. Well, that massively favors the big clubs, doesn't it? It massively, it, 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 it's almost like pulling the drawbridge up. So sort of challenger clubs that are very ambitious, that have a very ambitious owner, are finding it harder now to sort of gate crash the party. So you can start to sort of see where a Man City, for example, could sort of feel, well, hold on a minute, you've just done this to massively constrain us to make, you know, to, 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 you're frightened of our very wealthy owner. So that has played out for the last decade. And that, I think, goes to your question. You know, what is really wrong here? We didn't return in the Premier League a big four, big five into a big, well, certainly if you count Chelsea as well, who came in a few years before, we turned a big four into a big six. Isn't that better? Isn't that more fun? And then people will say, well, look at the money they've spent in East Manchester, which was, I don't live too far from there, which was a bit of a, bit of a, bit of a sort of post-industrial dump. Well, certainly around the ground it was. And they breathed, breathed life into that area. You know, isn't that a good thing? And look at the beauty of the football and, you know, you bring Pep Guardiola over, you bring some great players over. Doesn't that help the entire product? 
doesn't that help all teams because we're now you know sell sort of international rights so there is this theory that you know what's the problem here i think i think the other side if you like you know plays i, I don't think i'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here because i have to agree with this is that sport needs rules okay competition needs rules and financial fair play was agreed for a reason man city signed up to this and if they have uh, cheated and if they have sort of knowingly cheated with this elaborate conspiracy then they do deserve to be punished. Now, that's for someone else to decide what the punishment is. And if, and if it is ultimately really what we're talking about here is false accounting, well, the system does kind of unravel, not just financial fair play, but if clubs are not going to deal with the league, the competition organiser, with their other clubs in good faith, then the system does unravel. You know, we just, what sort of message does that send to everybody else? You know, if we cannot believe the accounts that clubs are producing... I think I think that is a pretty serious charge. So that I think is why the investigation is justified. If the investigation finds nothing, let's move on. Matt, uh, look, thanks so much for for joining us. Uh, it's uh, it's a it's a very complex story, but uh, the way you've uh, explained it and analysed the ramifications of it, uh, I think uh, and we're the all more educated, correct, uh, than we were before. Uh, no, no problem at all. No worries. Stay well, Matt Slater from The Athletic. All right, stick around. After the news, we've got a hell of a lot more. We're talking to Kieran Devlin, also from The Athletic, about Ange Postacoglu. He faces his baptism of fire against hearts this weekend. We'll talk more Europe with Dino and Dell, and we'll wrap it up with stoppage time. That's all next on Box to Box. Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbus and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For the Chemist, Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Absolutely fantastic! Welcome back to Box to Box, second edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly the Athletics man on the Celtic beat to talk Ange Postacoglu, that's Kieran Devlin. More European news with Dino and Dell, and as we always do, we'll wrap it up with the stoppage time. But Willem, what do you got for us, mate? Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Greening Old Army to start. Rob, take the first step towards the trip of a lifetime of the Greening Old Army today by signing up to the mailing list. It takes only two seconds and will enable you to support our national teams in all corners of the globe. Head to ggatravel.com.au. A couple of Aussies involved at the pointiest end of European Champions League qualifying, Michael, this morning. Uh, Ange Postacoglu and Celtic took on Michelin of Denmark. Ange Postacoglu working out that uh, he's got uh, uh, not much in the cupboard when it comes to Armory Willem. He, uh, he's got uh, the need to make some real significant signings. Uh, they've got some work to do. He's off to the Europa League. And Awa Mobile. That's exactly the, what I was thinking. He got the equaliser that yeah. uh, sunk Celtic and uh, Michelin are off to play Eindhoven, one of your good, one of your uh, teams, Willem. So, um, uh, Ange is—he's really got to get, get himself organised uh, to to make a, a fist of the Scottish Premier League this year. And we'll talk to Kieran Devlin, of course. Yeah, he's yeah, right. Looking forward to that discussion. He'll tell us uh, how much work Ange has got to do. And there was an emotional embrace between Ange and Almaville uh, after the first leg at, at Celtic Park. I'm not sure Ange would have been replicating that after the second, as Mobile did score on 61 minutes. I wanted to chat about Mobile quickly. Interestingly. Uh, he started that match, and he'd also come off the bench in their first league match of the season. A couple of months ago, he was pretty vocal in wanting to uh, leave the club, felt he'd been disrespected and hadn't been given enough minutes, and they weren't valuing him uh, given how much he'd contributed to them. So interesting. Uh, there's still time for him to leave this season, but 
matches are coming thick and fast now. So, Michael, as time rolls on, it's probably looking more likely that he'll be staying. Yeah, they've had a couple of uh, exits of uh, forwards from Mitchelland. So, at the moment, he's needed. But I do think they've made some signings that uh, he will come under pressure again. So, the word around town is that he's on the move. But uh, at the moment, they need him. And while they're in the uh, this sort of uh, European uh, playoff sort of rounds, it's, uh, it's good football for him. Over to Germany, Brandon Borello has hit the ground running with Dynamo Dresden in the Bundesliga 2. He started and played 58 minutes in their opening day win over Ingolstadt. He had his 26th birthday this week, Brandon, and this is the move that I think he needs to make work if he's to fulfil his potential. Unfortunately, over in Spain, Matt Ryan's going to have to wait to make his debut for Real Sociedad. He sustained a knee injury this week in training, had surgery and will miss four to six weeks. And over to Korea to finish a number of Aussies. A uh, number of Aussie defenders, in fact, took the field in the K-League this week. Alex Grant, he played 89 minutes for Pohang. He's looking to establish himself ahead of their Champions League knockout matches. Harrison Delbridge played a full match for Incheon in a 2-1 win. And new Suwon signing, Lockie Jackson, started his match in a 5-2 win. Not long now, guys, until the Premier League will be back on us once again. And Manchester United have put a significant stake in the ground. They've signed long-term target Jaden Sancho from Dortmund on a five-year deal the cross reportedly landing at £72.6 million. Sancho's sale represents a great piece of business for Dortmund, who snapped him up for just €8 million Euros from Man City four years ago. Meanwhile, United have also landed French World Cup winning defender Raphael Varane from Real Madrid for €42.7 million, Euros, with just a medical pending a four-year deal. Rob, how is this going to impact the power balance of the big oh, the big two, Manchester City and Liverpool at the moment? Are Manchester United ready to uh, rejoin the Elite Three? Well, they must think they are signing Ole uh, Gunnar Solskjaer to an extended contract, and Sancho, obviously one of the, the biggest names on the uh, you know the, the radar of, of all the big clubs around the world. So you'd have to think so. I mean, well, they had a big improver last season, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, and these two signings, and apparently there's two more to come. Um, you know, they're adding a, a lot of firepower. They must think they're close. Yeah, you'd, you'd think so. It's a lot and, of money to spend, isn't it, Willem? And, and as, as much as it goes against the grain for me to to, to want them to compete, I, I, I love to see the big clubs up and about oh, and, and doing well. It's, there's uh, no bigger fixture than Manchester United and Liverpool when those teams are going. And mm-hmm. we've sort of missed out on that recently. With crowds back into the stadiums mm-hmm. for the upcoming Premier League, uh, I'm looking forward to that one. Staying in England, the English FA have announced guided protocols surrounding heading of the ball will be introduced at all levels of the game in time for this season. High force headers being those following a pass of 35 metres or more or from set pieces and crosses will be limited to 10 per player in any week with clubs encouraged to develop player profiles to track those figures. The guidelines have also already been in place at junior level since February last year. While the daughter of former West Brom striker Jeff Astle, Dawn, she's been a big advocate uh, in this, she said the limit is extremely welcome. Now, guys, it's going to be very hard uh, to police something that minute at the, at the local and junior levels, but it is important that the framework is uh, is there to start with. And you'd think that given there's no changes to match play, there's been a bit of anxiety. Are they going to impact the way the game's played? They're not. This is just surrounding training. So hopefully people will respect from the off. Yeah, um, obviously I'm thinking of Dean there. His father is um, obviously in, in a home at the moment and uh, grew up in an, and played in an era over 400 games in the top flight uh, with heavy leather footballs. And um, no doubt his current illness may um, be tracked back to all those headers that he did uh, in the years gone by. So we might talk to Dino about uh, 
that later in the show, Rob, because the guidelines are welcome. And I think, it, mm. Willem, it's uh, it's the right policy shift because uh, we will need to impact the culture of the sport. And you don't do that through regulation. I think education is the way. And I think there's a lot of goodwill to those older players that are suffering in the later years of their lives from what's an obvious link between heading heavy, wet footballs in European winters to mm. dementia, uh, an early onset dementia and a later on in their life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting over to the CONCACAF Gold Cup this week, Qatar have continued their impressive lead into their home World Cup. They've reached the semi-finals of the Gold Cup with a 3-2 win over El Salvador. They have just one hurdle to clear to reach the final next Monday with a meeting against the US in Dallas. Uh, in the other semi-final, Mexico will place Canada in Houston. And if those two fixtures uh, go the way of the favourites, we could have a bumper USA and Mexico final. Uh, interested in your thoughts on Qatar, guys, in the lead-up to their home World Cup. This has certainly been one of the most proactive efforts we've seen from hosts. Sometimes clubs can sort of, sort of stagger in without any competitive football and be uh, a little bit maybe lame duck, as we saw with South Africa in 2010. But they've won the Asian Cup. They've played the European qualifiers. They're in the Gold Cup. They would have been in the Copper. This seems like a, a pretty significant, uh, significant move forward to being more of a sustained uh, football powerhouse, Michael. Well, um, I'm going to ask the Euro snob himself, Rob Gilbert, because uh, you've got to respect Middle Eastern football. Qatar in the Asian Cup won the Asian Cup on enemy soil. No bigger rival than United Arab Emirates, and they did that, um, and uh, they copped all of the uh, shoes over the fence when they did that on on enemy soil. So Qatar, for me, are the real deal. Um, They've been very, very good in most of their competitions they're building. Yeah, they have a few ring-ins like most of the Middle Eastern countries, but I'll ask the Euro snob himself. He's used that term twice, Well, I'm not sure how that can be applied to me, being the only person who works on this show that has any Middle Eastern blood running through their veins. When he he wants to be Middle Eastern, he will. He's he's, he's been Italian for the last month, Willem. Mate, I'm very pragmatic, don't worry. I don't mind your bandwagon. I can find a, a bandwagon to jump on by, by my view. My Your team, of, Lebanon, by the way, are improving significantly. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, I remember when they tried to get Andrew Naboot um, to, to represent uh, the country of his parents' birth as well. So, no, look, I like the fact that Qatar are, uh, are warming to their own home tournament. Yes, there's lots of discussion and we've been involved in that. We have strong opinions on that as well about all of the other issues around the Qatar World Cup. But insofar as football is concerned, they are preparing very well. And what I, I do think that they're doing is, uh, is pl- taking another step up the ladder of advancing football as a competitive sport around the world rather than just those of the Euro snobs. And, uh, and one day, and it'll happen in, in the, uh, the not-too-far-distant future, one of the second- and third-tier teams will actually win the World Cup, and, and that'll be a day uh, to celebrate. Okay, now, guys, I want to have a word about Melbourne Victory. Their push to re-establish themselves as an A-League powerhouse is on. Tony Popovich has signed a suite of players over the past fortnight. Socceroos Matthew Speranovic, Jason Davidson and Chris Economides will all reunite with Popper having played under him for Perth, while Robbie Cruz will hang around. He signed a one-year extension. Stefan Negro has rejoined the club on a three-year deal, while Brendan Hamill and 27-year-old Spaniard Rhea Marcan have also joined in the past week. And they still have four visa spots available by my account. And Michael, I know the club's uh, membership announcement and their push this week uh, really caught your eye. They've, uh, they've sort of bit of an homage to their history. Uh, and recognising that that was the basis of the club's success in the early days 
early signs under Popovich looking very positive. Yeah, absolutely. It looks like um, they've uh, got their shit together and uh, well and truly they've uh, the clubhouse leader in the membership ad campaign. I want to see what some of these other clubs come up with, but it is a beauty, Robert. Has it caught your eye? Yeah, now you mentioned that on the show last week and I haven't seen it yet. So by You this need time to next see week, it. It's an absolute yeah. ripper and uh, closed beautifully by uh, Tony Popovich, but also um, a homage to um, all the people that have uh, made a contribution to that club. And they do have a narrative, don't they, Willem? Melbourne Victory, they have a narrative and if they tap into that narrative, uh, they're, they're a super club again, no doubt about it. Yeah, and I think the uh, the fan base will just love the fact that all of their games are going to be played at home. So hopefully, um, COVID willing, uh, we'll be able to... Or Amy Park, that's right. Go. They've ditched Marble Stadium. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, Willem, well done, uh, mate. Uh, you're going to take uh, a break and we are going to talk to Kieran Devlin about Ange Postacoglu. The Scottish Premiership starts this weekend. It's the first of the big European tournaments to get underway. And just had a little bit of a wobbly start, uh, but uh, we uh, are certainly hoping that he can uh, get off to uh, the best kind of start against Hearts this weekend. We'll talk to Kieran Devlin from The Athletic about all of that next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be yes, this is Box to Box on 9 Radio NTS News Talk Sport. Now, one of the biggest stories, and I'm not under starting it uh, in the history of Australian football was the news that Ange Postacoglu had finally gotten his dream, his long-awaited dream of uh, landing a prime coaching managerial position in European football. It was, of course, announced a month or so ago that uh, he's going to Celtic. He's uh, been there for a month or so now and uh, mixed results so far, uh, not the least of which was the uh, the Champions League exit against uh, Michelin. And to discuss that with us is the man on the athletic beat for Celtic, Kieran Devlin. How are you, Kieran? I'm good. I'm good, mate. How are you guys doing? Yeah, really good. So before we get on to that, um, that Champions League result, uh, insofar as the um, the understanding of Postacoglu, you wrote a, a great analysis piece, uh, which I'd encourage anyone to, to jump on and, and have a look at, uh, where you really profiled him. Uh, the uh, the Postacoglu and Puskas at the club that moulded the city's Greek immigrants was the headline. Um, so uh, so the, the, the Celtic fans are well and truly uh, aware of exactly who he is right now. What's your sense of the reception? Um, have the, um, ha- has it been a welcoming one? I think at the start um, it was mixed, uh, surely because he was a relative unknown in in Glasgow at, at the time, um, and people after you know there, I think there, there was the baggage of that Postecoglou was very clearly the the second choice after the deal for Eddie Howe, uh, former Bournemouth manager Eddie Howe fell through. But saying that as the weeks have gone on, as you know, fans have done the research. As my myself, I did, did a number of profiles on him, and you, as you guys well, you know, once you you listen to Postecoglou speak and the enthusiasm and the eloquence he has, it's hard not to get caught up in it. It's hard not to just instinctively buy into what he's what he's offering and what he clearly, very sincerely believes he can do for you for for Celtic and what he's done as, at, for the. Australian national team and his previous clubs as well, and I think there is a real groundswell of support for him as a as a manager and as a man and where he's going to take Celtic now. I think it's it's taking time to build, but there's you know it's really snowballing into a real sense of momentum about him now. Obviously, a disappointing result um, last night, albeit I must say, Michelin's you know absolutely no mugs on the European scene and a pretty pretty tough draw. 
a lot of the criticism was actually not aimed at Ange. Uh, well, a lot of it was aimed at the boardroom. Can you maybe talk to our listeners about what those frustrations are, particularly around signing new personnel? I think, I think that, yeah, I think the important context we had is last season there would have been Celtic were going for their tenth title in a row, and they decided to retain their key players for one more season rather than sell for their maximum value because um, they had the likes of Odds and Edward who was. I'm not. I'm not sure if you guys caught any of the either of the games at all, but he was very, very poor in both games. But at one stage, he was Celtic's best player and their most valuable asset. They rejected bids from Germany from from for over 50 million last summer for him. Um, no chance he's getting close for being so with that now. Um, there, there were other players like Olivier Jam, Christopher Iyer that they kept. So they knew that there was going to be this massive rebuild that needed this summer. They knew that these these key players were going to have one year left in the contract. There was a lot of loan signings returning. There were a lot of players who were deadwood that needed moved on. And in turn, they needed probably... Well, I, I wrote about this in January, but it turned out to be a conservative, conservative estimate of roughly 11, 12, 13, 13 players in. At the moment, they have three, which sort of underlines the, the scale of what Postacoglu has had to, to, to handle with. And I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen his comments after the game where he delivered a very barbed message to the boardroom um, when he said he felt, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, I feel I've not done my job if I've not convinced people that we need signs in the door. And he's just been dealt the worst hand of a Celtic manager in my lifetime because that back five is the worst back five I've ever seen in my lifetime as a Celtic um, well, fan and, and definitely as a journalist. And it is just, you know, considering the, okay, the Champions League, given all this mitigating circumstances, Champions League was going to always be a tough ask. Um, but at the same time, there's no excuse that he only has those players, that quality of player available to him. And what is, you know, fin- financially, that is the most important game last season because of the, the, you know, tens of millions of pounds are available if they were to qualify for the Champions League group stages, and they were just so obscenely underprepared. And I think, I think this is the, where it's going to come to a head now, um, because there has been after the frustrations of Celtic last season, where they completely capitulated and the the fans felt they were um, sold down the river by the board and the owner. What's happened this summer and the way it's responding to Postacoglu as well, um, you know, the, the fans, ha- because the fans are buying into him and because he is being very honest about the, t- the, the calibre of players and he wants and needs to play the football that he wants and needs, it is becoming, a, it's becoming this sort of stance now where the fans are fully behind Postacoglu and they are infuriated with the board for doing a disservice to him and what he is trying to do at the club? Obviously, the league campaign starts um, this weekend as Celtic will go away to Hearts for the first game. What kind of Scottish Premier League does does Ange face now? Obviously, we know about Rangers and they they look in good form in in, uh, in the pre-season before, you know, win over Real Madrid amongst some impressive results. But is there a danger that some of the teams further down the league, you know, the third, fourth place teams, could actually come up and challenge Celtic even for that that second place? Is it that bad at the moment, Kieran? 
Well, I, I think the that back five, the keeper on the back and the back line that started last night, are not of the quality of a top six Scottish Premiership team. Uh, that that is not that's not hyperbole. That is not over uh, overstressing it. That is just a, a reality of it. And that is an absurd position for any Celtic manager to be in. Um, Rangers are, you know, they, they've not lost any key players. You know, they've added, they've added, they've got another year of being understanding the philosophy and style that Stephen Gerrard wants to play. So they've, you know, there's no no reason to suggest that they've got weaker. And then you have teams like Aberdeen and Hibs who have improved. They've made some really smart signings this window. They've got some good coaches. And I think they will also improve. They finished third and fourth last season. I think what well, I think the, the thing we have to bear in mind is, and this is what you know, I've been what everyone I've spoken to about Postecoglou said. It does take time, even in the right circumstances, because of the way he play, likes to play a very specific way. The players need months to build that. I do think it's slightly different for Celtic because. Celtic are so clearly one of two dominant teams in Scotland compared to Japan and Australia where it's a bit more equitable, it's a bit more competitive in, in that sense. So I do think there will be a greater expectation for him to, to, to deliver something clear um, this season. I went, but at the same time, I think fans, at least for the moment, you know, football is a fickle game and it could change over time, but for the moment, fans are so passionate about what he's trying to do and they're dying into it so much that they will give him wriggle room it is it is entirely down to the board and there's one month left of the transfer window it's a, it's, you know, it's, the, the onus is on them to deliver the players that he can use to build something and to be fair you know, against Hearts they should have two players avail- available to them that weren't uh, eligible for the Michelin game they've got um, I believe Carl Starfelt is going to be available, the Swedish uh, um, player they got from Ruben Kazan in uh, Russia. And he, you know, he's going to be a, an immediate upgrade on what they have in the defence. And then Kyogo Furuhashi, they got from uh, Vizel Kobe, looks a tremendously exciting player and somebody that would fit Postokoglu's style as well. And I think it's touch and go whether he can feature against Hearts. But if, if he's available, he's got, he's got to play because he is so clearly an improvement of what they have there at the moment. And it's just going to be, it's very frustrating it's taken this long, but hopefully with Postecoglou's very public comments about it and the sheer amount of pressure from fans, hopefully the, the board do wake up and give them four, five, six, you know, immediate quality first team players because he needs it. He really needs it. This team, this, is, this team isn't fit to come close to competing for the title this season as it stands. This is Box to Box. We're talking to Kieran Devlin from The Athletic about uh, Ange Postacoglu, what he's got ahead of him at Celtic in the Scottish Premiership. Kieran, um, just explain to our Australian listeners, the owner, as I understand it, lives in Ireland. Uh, he's got a board that uh, runs the club. Um, but the, the word out of the Postacoglu camp in Australia is that the owner really does, um, um, on a whim, decide uh, action. And can you explain um, who he is, uh, what sort of profile he's got within the club community, and does he really have a connection with the fans? Uh, probably in comparison to like the Rangers board do. I think he. So he's not the majority shareholder. He's a major shareholder with I think between thirty-five and forty percent of the shares. Um, he's an Irish billionaire who you know he's got 
he's one of he's got his hands in many many industries and many many uh, <laughs> business pies to use a really twisted analogy. Um, he he doesn't to be uh, careful, but he there's a, a lot of the criticisms that have been labelled at him is that he as the, the the word from the campus he likes to be heavily involved in the day to day running of the club. He likes to have an oversight in decisions, and as been apparent this summer, transfer no one in particular, Celtic didn't bring anyone to, with any experience to football operations. They brought in their new CEO, to, who is obviously heading up the business side of things. But in terms of stuff like recruitment, academy, integration, loans, all that side of things, there's, there's, there's literally no one there. And there was there was the it was reported or was like suggested by the club that Posta Coglu would even have take a lead in transfers, but that hasn't happened. Furuhashi is the only player they've signed so far that has been at Posta Coglu request. The rest of the time, it has been low-cost punts, like players who are available for free transfers that may be good, may become good over time, but they're nowhere near first-team ready at the moment. Agent recommendations. They spent $4 million on a player that recommended by an agent, which, given <laughs> given the size of the rebuild and the seriousness of what the job required, is quite it's quite scandalous, really. And they, you know, they're, they're about to, they're, it looks like they're about to sing a wing-back who's completely unsuitable to the style of football and the, the role of, of, of a fullback that Postacogli wants from, from his teams. Um, and as I understand it, the owner has been having a major say in all of this. You know, I think there was a, there was a comment that um, they, well, from one of my club sources who's no longer there, he did make the comment that what Dermot Desmond wants, Dermot Desmond gets, which, considering, you know, this is a guy who, you know, he's been owner of the club for well over two decades now, but he's never had a career in football operations. Uh, this is, it, it, he doesn't understand the modernization, how quickly the game has advanced in recent years when you're looking at the, the developments in sports science and analytics and video analysis and conditioning, all these areas of the game that, Coglu is very interested in and what's very, you know, very desperately supporting is not areas where a lot of the, the boardroom and the owner understand very instinctively because they have been together for decades now, this boardroom. And then the former CEO, he was CEO for Celtic for nearly 18 years, which is just, uh, from a business standpoint, is an, like an incredible amount of time when they say the average life expect well, the average your expectancy of a CEO in the role is between four to six years and because your ideas do get tired and it does feel like Celtic are being run like a club at the 1990s still. Mm. It sounds like uh, there is going to be a lot of headlines and not all about football this year, but rest assured, Kieran, uh, as a Celtic man yourself and somebody who's on the beat, that uh, uh, I think you've done enough research on Ange to know that he is up for the fight. He uh, he never backs down from one. Um, he will give you uh, a, a strong opinion at a press conference and he'll speak about the board and he'll speak about the owner. There, there is absolutely no question whatsoever. So if the fans are looking for a voice that reflects their own personal 
personal opinions, mate. Well, you, you're 100% got your man. Hey, Kieran, look, uh, we've run out of time now, so we'll wrap it up there. But uh, we would love to follow Ange's uh, career at Celtic with you if uh, we can indulge uh, you uh, on other occasions over the course of the season and, and welcome you back to the show, mate. Yeah, I'd love to. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, not at all. We've uh, enjoyed it even more, Kieran Devlin from The Athletic, talking about Ange Postacoglu, which sounds like there's uh, a lot going on behind the scenes at that club at Glasgow, but uh, we'll find out more as the season rolls on. All right, stick around. After the break, we're going to talk more Europe with Dino and Derek on Box to Box. Box to Box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this, yes, this is Box to Box on Nine Radio NTS News Talks. Well, what a great chat that was with Kieran Devlin from the Athletic. Ange Postacoglu, it's all before him. It all starts this weekend. We're going to talk more Europe in a moment with Dino and Dell. But before we do, you know where to go when you want to save on your sports nutrition. Yes, you go to Chemist Warehouse. There's INC 100% WPI for just seventy nine ninety nine. INC 100% Dynamic Whey for only $54.99. INC Plant Protein, Chocolate or Vanilla, 2kg variants, just $34.99 each. And Protein World, 1kg assorted variants, now only $29.99. Remember, in addition, Woo-hoo. thank you, Michael, to visiting your local Chemist Warehouse store, you can click and collect to save time. Order online for delivery by Australia Post and get free shipping on orders over $50. Or call and ask for same-day home delivery. Fees and charges may apply. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings are every single day. And there's football on every single day, gentlemen. How are you, Derek? How are you, Dina? Very good. Very good. Well, Derek, yeah. you've been with us for a little while. And Dino, um, you've been... Uh, Sitting on the bench there, brother. Derek, where, do you, where are we going to steer right. this around, man? Well, look, it would be remiss for us not to at least acknowledge with all that Olympics chat that um, there is a GB side to this clash against Australia. And, Dino, are you going to back our ladies to get the job done over the Aussies? Um, I'm not really sure. I mean, I've got... Uh, I'm most probably more leaning on the Australian side because I'm more more engaged with them than I am the uh, the British. So I think I'll stick with the Aussies. Good on you, oh, Dean. Yeah, well, well I'll, mate. I'll offer a solitary vote for Team GB then. And <laughs> next time we catch up, we will know exactly what happened. So um, we've had um, some discussion around Manchester City and what they've been up to spending-wise, Dino. But uh, over the other side of Manchester, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has been making impressive uh, additions to his squad. Um, Jaden Sancho, obviously, we know, we've known about that yeah. um, all, all summer. But they've finally got Varane, a player that they've courted for several years and several managers. But how does he look alongside Harry Maguire in that defence? Look, I think that could be like most probably the, the, the best piece of the jigsaw puzzle at the back. Um, I mean, Maguire's been really good at Man United since he started. And... And, you know, the Lindelof, you know, and whoever else might, might check in there and, and, and do a job. It's, uh, it never really works. So I think the, the, Varane, the Varane definitely is going to be, for me, one of the biggest parts of the jigsaw puzzle that I think he's got right. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, you know, he's been given the backing as well, hasn't he? And a, new, a new deal. And he's very much the man for Manchester United. And they will certainly be hoping to bridge that gap to Manchester City. They were second last year, but it was a distant second. And uh, there will be high expectations with this 
star-studded lineup they're putting together. That they'll go a little further. Going on to another one of the kind of contenders uh, that we want to cover, um, Tottenham. Harry Kane. A lot of work, you know, a lot of noise around him before and during the Euros. Not much movement afterwards, uh, Dino. What, what do you think Harry Kane should do, and what do you think he will do? Well, now look, I mean, it's it's a bit of a puzzle as well. This one where uh, you've got the chairman, and we all know what the chairman's like. Um, he's uh, he's not going to let him go for for nothing. Um, and then you're talking on the flip side of that, 160 million to get him. So, I mean, I I heard earlier like it was going to be around the 140. 145, but now it's 160. Uh, look, if if they get him there, and Manchester City will play with a nine, not a false nine, um, then I mean I think it could be the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle for, uh, for for them. And also I'm hearing also that maybe, just maybe, um, I'm thinking if Aston Villa and keep uh, Jack Grealish. That's what they'll be aiming to do. But I think they're certainly in line with that because the other signing that they maybe want to get, and I think that they'll have done their business. The player that uh, Aston Villa were courting for several months was Arsenal youngster Emil Smith-Rowe. The yeah. 21-year-old has now signed a new contract with Arsenal that will keep him at the club for the next four years. And, you know, as much as Arsenal fans want you know, big, big signings. You know, this is potentially one of their more crucial signings, but also a sign of the times that Arsenal are fighting off Aston Villa for one of their star players. You know, <laughs> you know, if you told me about this 15 years ago, I would have thought it was a joke. But going back to Spurs, talking about those great signings that are not necessarily a transfer, Son Hyun Min signs for a four-year contract. Surely the powers that be around Europe must be looking at this player, but... Tottenham have done well to keep hold of their star man, do you know? No, they have, and uh, and he's been he's been integral with the Tottenham, uh, you know, especially with Kane. He and Kane were fabulous together, you know, assisting each other and scoring goals together. So, yeah, look, it's um, I, I feel a little bit for Tottenham a little bit because you know they've got the, the best stadium most probably in the, in the country. Um, and they have got some good players, but I think they're definitely going to have to be in a rebuild. Uh, and and the best the best players you can get that, that's what you that's what you're going to need certainly this season because I, I I think if they don't sign some really good players in the next couple of weeks, I think they'll be found wanting. And you know you can see Tottenham hovering in around the middle of the table. Just want to clarify that unlike Dino, I do not steal a bit for Tottenham on <laughs> any any level. They have signed one player, Dino, Brian Gill or Hill from uh, Sevilla. Um, yeah. And Eric Lamella is going to join that club as part of the deal. And Lamella is the last player of that galaxy of stars that they bought with the bail money. So it's yes, very much yeah. the end of an era. Eric Lamella, a fantastically talented player. But I tell you what, his four years, sorry, his sort of seven or eight years at Tottenham didn't really do it. Uh, and Toby Alderweireld is now gone as well. I think there's been some... Um, points made in recent years about the creaky ageing defence and Alvaro's was a fabulous centre-back in Premier League football but I think that is the the right move for for Tottenham at this stage and they need some new blood in the centre of that defence as well. Um, Quick line on Liverpool, uh, Rob. Uh, Gino Wijnaldum um, didn't feel loved or appreciated by some uh, people at the club and he's now at Barcelona. Can you understand his point? 
Yeah, look, I think this is an insight into the, the way that uh, that modern players uh, view social media. I was listening to uh, some analysis on this on, on the BBC and uh, and it gave me an insight uh, into uh, just the way they go about things. And, you know, we all know young players uh, love to jump on their phones the moment they walk off the pitch. But in this instance, uh, there was a, a point raised which I thought made a lot of sense that uh, that when he's at Anfield, he only gets cheered. There's no question whatsoever about how much the Liverpool fans love him. But a lot of this criticism comes on social media. So the question has to be asked is there are a lot of nasty fans out there uh, who follow clubs, but there's also a lot of uh, uh, fans from other clubs who love to jump on social media and slaughter players uh, from opposing clubs under the guise of being a supporter of the club that that player plays for. So I'd posit the theory that uh, why not? Alden might be uh, uh, jumping at shadows here and uh, and that he ought to pay more attention to the love that he got at Anfield rather than the criticism from social media, if that makes sense. Yeah, interesting stuff, Rob. And uh, talking about um, uh, PSG, uh, another player there, Neymar Edge, uh, he, he's been involved in a little bit of a, a stouse with his former club, Barcelona. Uh, they all seem to owe each other huge amounts of money. Is this just reflective of just the state of where Barcelona is right now? Probably does. Um, and Neymar and PSG, that's a, um, an interesting one, isn't it? And God knows what went on between Barcelona and Neymar because obviously there's uh, relationships back into Qatar with all of those entities, Neymar and the two clubs. So who knows went on there? And uh, obviously there's multiple millions of um, euros involved in that legal stash. Um, I don't profess to know what's going on, but... Um, Neymar, uh, controversy follows him wherever he goes, not to mention he's uh, diving in the uh, in the box, <laughs> which one, Dean one would appreciate. That, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> one, one player who uh, I suppose he was the opposite of Neymar, John Terry, uh, uh, he left his role at Aston Villa. I mean, I don't know how much Dino a role John Terry played, but surely having someone of that calibre and that experience alongside Dean Smith must have helped Villa as they kind of ascended the Premier League table last season. Do you, do you see any signs that JT could fulfil his dream of becoming a full-time manager? Yeah, I do actually. Um, you know, he was a he was a good player. You know, in his own right. Um, obviously, an England international um, did a fabulous job at Chelsea, and uh, and and I think, and I'm not saying this that you know, all of the better managers are defenders. But if you've, you've played in, in, a, in, a, in a team where you've seen the game from front to back, it's, I think it's a lot easier for managers to learn, you know, that their trade a little quicker, possibly. Um, but for me, I, I think he's ready. Um, it's going to be interesting which type of club he's going to go to. Um, you'd like to think he's going to go there with, from my opinion, he'd be there where he's going to go and take a really good challenge, like a championship club, possibly to try and get them promoted. And um, and I think it will be really important of the assistant that he is now, if he becomes the gaffer, what assistant he brings in. As we wrap up the Euro segment, that two of uh, John Terry's kind of almost compatriots, really. Uh, players to managers have been in the headlines for the wrong reason this week. Dino Joey, Joey Barton has, uh, um, and this is serious. You know, this one assaulted a, a woman, uh, and he's currently under investigation for that. And we all know about Joey's temper. Uh, and then obviously the Wayne Rooney pictures that came out, the alleged yeah, blackmail, um, 
I mean, uh, you know, I don't know why he was sleeping in that room. To be honest, if you're pretty, pretty exciting from where I could, I could <laughs> see. Uh, he obviously just can't keep, can't keep up with it anymore. But yeah, those are two young managers carving their way in the game, but struggling to uh, stay out of the headlines for the, for the wrong reasons. But also, you know, it, it even got worse for him because when he went back to training, he joined in and into a. A practice uh, match, you know, a little uh, little game, and uh, he's he's ended one of the better players at Derby, uh, and he's out for twelve weeks. So Jason Knight, exactly. <laughs> Jason Knight, exactly. Yeah, bad <laughs> week for Wayne Rooney. Bad, bad week, bad <laughs> week on the track. Oh Wayne, <laughs> God, he's but he's got plenty of headlines, doesn't he, Wayne? Uh, he's uh, he, he, I'll be lo- very interested in writing, reading the book about his own personal insights into his career when it's all over. All right, guys, um, stay where you are. We've got a bit more to go in stoppage time just to pull this whole thing together. That's after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of yes, all. Yes, this is Box to Box on Nine Radio NTS News Talk Sport. It's been a busy show this week, and I think it's going to be a genuine stoppage time by our standards, at least because I think the fourth official's only given us about seven minutes to steer this thing home. So uh, before we do uh, talk a little championship, it kicks off next week. I'm talking about Storage King. Is your home running out of space? Well, you need to call Storage King. If you're decluttering, moving, renovating, downsizing, or creating a home office, we talk about it pretty much every single week. I know that I couldn't have created my home office without the help of our friends at Storage King. They do have the answer for everybody. There's stores everywhere, so it's very, very convenient. If you're stored before, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, get online, find your nearest store, at least pick up the phone and make an inquiry. They've got a crack team of storage professionals. Go to storageking.com.au for your nearest store. All right, boys, um, so... um, Next week, the uh, championship kicks off. We talked about uh, oh, Wayne Rooney. He'll be one down, uh, fortunately, for Derby. They are actually going to be playing in the championship. There was a period there where it looked like that they might not be. Uh, but, uh, Dino, um, from the end of last season, uh, are there one or two teams that, that you've got uh, big expectations on? Yeah, I have, actually. Uh, I think I, I've just got a feeling like Swansea... Came a little bit short at the end, but I think there's quite a lot of good work going down in Swansea. So I think they're, they're going to be up, up in that top six. Uh, and, you, and you look at West Brom, you know, will they bounce back? And they generally do. Uh, so that's a question mark too. Sheffield United, not sure there where that's going. Uh, I think it's based on some signings they've got to bring in uh, to, to make sure that they get come back up. But... I think Fulham are going to be in the equation. Uh, Cardiff, um, Nottingham Forest, I think, can have a better season. Um, Dino. And, Dino. Yeah. Uh, I want to um, talk about, just quickly, before you guys are rattling off, let's talk about the clubs coming up. And there's a very big name in one of those clubs coming up, Coventry City. Um, can Peterborough or Coventry or Blackpool... Can either of them stay up? Um, Blackpool, I think, can. I think Blackpool uh, were very good in that playoff final. And um, and obviously the, the finances will come in and, and they'll get a little bit more money in there. So I think Blackpool can. Um, not sure. Um, just trying to think who else. Well, what are you thinking? What about you, Derek? I want to challenge one of the things Dino said around Fulham. I mean, I understand, you know, you've got a premiership squad 
coming down into this championship. But they've lost their manager from the last two seasons. Yeah. And we'll talk about him in a moment. And they've appointed the well-travelled and often maligned Marco Silva, who uh, last spotted, I think, dragging... Uh, Everton slowly down the table before uh, before their revival. So I think it will be fascinating to see uh, how how they go. Um, Scott Parker has arrived at Bournemouth, and Bournemouth were pretty good last season. They uh, made the playoffs, and and uh, you know Scott Parker has been uh, has looked at as one of the kind of managers to look at. Young manager talking about that, you know, probably in that John Terry kind of category, Lampard yeah. um, category of managers in their age. And look out for Watford. Um, always good in this in this league, and uh, they were they were pretty close last year. So, you know, maybe maybe Bournemouth and Watford for me. Well, you know uh, what I'm going to say, Dean, and that is that uh, the Blue Noses uh, will finish ahead of Derby, and they'll finish ahead of Nottingham Forest. So I'm I'm putting it out there because um, I just love the DNA, the love the Blue Noses, the roughest toughest, meanest, dirtiest team in the championship. Yes, I, I can't disagree with that. Um, and look at, and I can't disagree with that. And I do actually think Derby are going to struggle, to be honest. Mm. I mean, they struggled last year, so with the start they've got now and what's on their plate, um, there's got to be a big, big turnaround. All right, boys. Well, the interesting uh, one for me, Jed. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Jed. The interesting one for me, boys, is Dino. Dino briefly mentioned is Sheffield United. We all know that they were, um, you know, in on the skirts, you know, the fringes of European football. And you know, had COVID not struck and had that goal that we did go over the line and uh, Villa Park, Villa Park, yeah. You know, what 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 would this be? And now they're, you know, down um, down the league. They've got um, Jakanovic as manager, and as Dino said, God knows, like. You know, could they put together a run with the core nucleus of that team to get back up to the Premier League? Or will they drop another one? Because we've seen teams drop through these divisions before. So Sheffield United are the team to watch, I think. It will be fascinating. Yeah, me too. All right, boys. Well, as I was going to say, the championship deserves well, Harry a lot Suter more. Stoke, right? Exactly, mm-hmm. a lot more discussion than mm-hmm. stoppage time. So we'll do a proper uh, background on uh, what we're expecting from the championship and throw in a few of our tips as well. All right, boys. Well, another great show, Dino. Thanks again, mate. Yeah, lovely. Thank you, Derek. Yes, boys. He's still there. Thank you, Rob. Great show. And mm. go, Matildas. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, if you're listening to this afterwards, we're celebrating after a win against Team GB. Willem, you have already departed. Thank you for your efforts, Damo. Thank you, mate, and to you out there listening. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, tell your friends and uh, give us a five-star rating on uh, on uh, iTunes and whatever uh, platform you're listening to us on. If it's a podcast, we, uh, we love the feedback that we get and we're grateful for everyone who uh, spreads the word. And we hope you'll join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.